This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. This is Bustin' Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Bustin' Loose Baseball, welcome in. I'm Grant Paulson, producer Darius Dameron, making everything sound good. Danny Ruye is not with us today. He is in Austin, Texas on travel. Um, I'm going to say it's for business, but no one really knows. It's an undisclosed location. He's out and about in Austin, Texas. But we've got some Nats baseball to banter about now, don't we? I'm actually recording this pod while they are in action in Atlanta right now. Series finale against the Braves. They're trailing early 2 to nothing in this ball game. When this game ends... There will be 13 games left this season for the Nationals, and then this season will end mercifully. (laughs) We are kind of awaiting the finish line here on the horizon for the Nats. So they play this game today on Wednesday. They're off Thursday. Then they're at Miami Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Then they come home for a homestand, the final of the year, to host the Braves and the Phillies, who... By the way, I think they've only been at Nats Park once. It was over that long Zimmerman uh, celebration weekend. Kind of an oddity in the schedule in that regard. And then uh, the Nats at the Mets for the final three games of the year. The season will end on October 5th. As everybody knows, not only will there be no playoff baseball, but the question is, will the Nationals finish with the worst record in the sport right now? They are 51-97, and 97, which means they are four games worse than Pittsburgh, as I like to say. Four games up on the Pirates for the back-end spot in the National League. Uh, their stiffest competition to have the worst record? Probably the Oakland A's, who were just at Nats Park not long ago. They're 54-94. and 94. They are three games worse than... Uh, better than the Nationals in the standings, but three games worse as far as I'm concerned. And if I'm confusing you, it's because I want to have the worst record at this point. We've suffered through this horrendous season, this 345 winning percentage, seeing them 30 games off the place from even wild card contention. The best thing that can happen now is that they can secure the best draft pick possible. And as we talked about on the last pod, there is now going to be a draft lottery, so they're no longer guaranteed the number one overall pick, which is annoying and and is not what I'd prefer. I, I like the idea of where you finish dictating where you draft a la the National Football League. But there was enough, I think, fan disappointment and anger and some front offices and certainly a lot of players that didn't like how many teams were no longer trying to win and spending at the major league level and building teams to compete this season. You know, in any given year, 
we got to a point where a third of the sport kind of went into the campaign, not just without a chance to win a World Series, but actively efforting, essentially, with the roster they were building to gain draft position. And I think baseball didn't like that for obvious reasons. Uh, You want more teams vying for wins now, trying to win in the moment. And so that's why the draft lottery has been enacted to effectively try to end what is called tanking. Although, as we talked about on this podcast, I think it's just called building. I'm a Mike Elias guy. I was in Houston when he was working under Luno with the Astros. Good buddy of mine, Kevin Goldstein, in that front office at one point in time. He's now in Minnesota with the Twins. But you know, I believe in uh, drafting and developing and spending money below the big leagues. And we saw it with the Nationals years ago. I believe in um, establishing a really good system with really strong prospects as a foundation. And those guys aren't all going to hit. And, and people love to take shots at prospects that don't hit and talk about how they're not sure things. And, and that's very true. Uh, but when you get blue chippers in the top 10 in the draft, more often than not, you know, the batting average on those guys becoming good big leaguers is pretty high. That's where you draft Harper at one, Strasburg at one, Rendon at six, right? Some of the huge stars and impact players in this game. You know, for the Astros, it was Correa in the top uh, pick in the draft. It was Springer in the top ten. Um, they, they, for years, you know, Bregman in the top five picked up high, and, and you got a hit. I mean, that, that goes without saying, right? If, if you don't hit on those picks, then it doesn't matter. And for a long, long time, the Nationals have not hit on their first-round draft picks. But it's a lot easier to hit when you're drafting at the top of the board. You know, when you take Elijah Green as an example in the top five, even though he was probably one of the, the riskier uh, picks this in terms of boom or bust, you got a much higher ceiling, better chance at a star generally than when you're picking someone outside of the top 20. And you just look at you know, this trade they made for Juan Soto going out to San Diego for all the prospects they got back that everyone loved so much and where those guys got drafted. I mean, Robert Hassel was a top 10 pick, and uh, C.J. Abrams was the sixth pick in the draft, and James Wood fell in the draft. He was kind of a top 10 talent. If the draft was redone, he'd be a top five pick. But, you know, he went outside of the first round based on some concerns about his swing and some questions about him. But for the most part, Mackenzie Gore, third overall pick, like the, the, the great prospects in the game, as evidenced by that trade, are drafted really, really high. Speaking of the Soto deal really quickly, man, do I feel for Juan. I mean, he's getting beat up pretty good nationally. Finally got a home run. And here recently, he's trying to turn the tide, it looks like. He's hitting about 292 over his last seven games with seven batted in. But he was entering the week like three for 46, I think it was, uh, at the plate. I mean, a struggle the likes of which we just hadn't really seen. He's hitting 231 with just a 765 OPS in San Diego and only four homers in about 40 games. I mean, it has really been a struggle. Uh, 23 years old for Soto, always playing with that smile on his face. He hasn't had nearly as much fun. He's been getting booed a little bit by Padres fans as well. Just a reminder that you know the grass is not always greener, and that's not to say that he forced a trade or anything like that, but remember, he was not going to resign here, and the reason that the Nats traded him was that they decided and came to the realization that whether it was him or Scott Boris or both, I mean, that they weren't going to kind of play ball on a contract, so... The best time to trade Juan Soto is never, and the second best time is right now. And they moved him 
And if you're Soto, that means learning a new ballpark and learning a new organization and learning new teammates. And, you know, you're in the same league, but mastering the video study and everything he's got to do on the pitchers in that division and just getting used to a bunch of things you haven't had to think about for several years in one organization. You know, the, the feel of that batter's box and, and you know, that uh, prep, you know, that you're doing in, in the uh, stadium, in the bowels of the stadium, you know, their batting cages. And it, it, it's different. It's like transferring schools or having a new job. You know what I mean? Where do I go get my pencils? Where do I uh, – where's my cabinet for my, you know, uh, paper for my computer? Like, it just – it's not always easy, man, and it hasn't gone that well for him in San Diego. I'll be fascinated to see next year what happens because, you know, when they acquired him, my thought was that the Padres would probably have to move him at some point to try to recoup some of what they gave up in their system because he's also not resigning with them ahead of going to market, I wouldn't think, uh, barring something crazy happening. I guess he could have, you know, an epiphany now going into the offseason and say that, the contract's affecting him and tell Boris to get a deal done. But my guess is that he's still headed to free agency um, now two full seasons from now, starting next year. And, and if that's the case, then the Padres might have to move him at the deadline next year, depending on you know where they're at in the standings, just to try to rebuild the system that is kind of now diminished and depleted. Uh, but they're just fighting and scratching and clawing to try to keep a wild card spot right now. Uh, they are three and a half games, I guess four games up on Milwaukee uh, at this point as uh, a comfortable playoff team. They're one and a half up on Philly, staying out of what is kind of that last wild card spot, which is a big deal. And the Padres, as Soto's gotten going here, have won four in a row in six of ten. Uh, and they've gained three games on Milwaukee over the last three days, which is huge, right? Because they were basically a game up from being on the outside looking in when they hit this winning streak. And meanwhile, the, the Phillies have fallen off completely as well. They've lost five in a row. And so that you're talking about going from basically, I think it was two and a half up on the Padres to now being one and a half back on San Diego just over the last four games that uh, the Padres have played. So uh, they're in much better shape, and I think those fans maybe will breathe a little easier and take it a little easier on Soto if – they can punch their ticket to the playoffs with him swinging a, a decent bat uh, the rest of the way. I wanted to mention, though, I looked this up. So a lot is made about you know how this year was a tough season for Nats fans, which is so true. But if you notice the narrative sometimes, it's almost like this was the first year that this team has committed fully to a rebuild. And I just think that's so wrong and flawed, right? If, if you're one of us here who's in D.C. and watches every game and lives and dies with this team and goes to Nats Park a ton, you know, I'll probably end up having hit 35 or so games by the end of the season. Um, that's just not correct, right? I mean, th this team has been bad now for three years. And I, I guess where this reared its head most was I was talking to someone the other day, who's a smart baseball person in, in baseball, and they said, yeah, the Nats, they're going to be struggling, it looks like, for the next couple of years as they build that thing up. You know, is that fan base going to be patient? I know this was kind of the first year where they've had to go through this team tanking, you know, or whatever word they used. And that's just not true. That is what people think. But remember, 
They won the World Series in 2019. Now, they didn't plan to be bad in 2020, but they were terrible in 2020. That was a last-place type team that season that just, in that 60-game, shortened year, wasn't really competitive. 2021 last year, they were also bad. They lost almost 100 games. They sold off all their best players and all the players that weren't bolted down, basically. Anyone who didn't have a contract at the end of the season pending free agent, you were gone. Remember, they made, I think it was like um, eight trades and, and brought back, I think, 13 players and gave up a bunch of veterans, your Josh Harrison and Jan Gomes types and your Scherzer and, and uh, Trey Turner trade. I mean, all those moves were last year at the deadline as part of what was a really bad year. And then you have this year. So this is the third season now as a fan base. You've dealt with this largely. And if you want to say 2020 was different because they had still the stars that you wanted to go watch, right? You still had, other than Rendon, you know, but Scherzer was there and Strasburg and, and uh, Trey Turner and Juan Soto. Okay, that's fine. But beyond that, like just because 2021 you had some of your favorite players still, I mean, it's been bad baseball. So I looked this up. If you go back to the start of the 2020 season, so April 1st, 2020 to September 21st, as I taped today here in 2022, the Nationals have the second worst record in Major League Baseball. 142 wins and 228 losses. Only the Pirates at 135 and 235 have been worse. So they have basically a seven-game cushion for the title of the worst team in the sport over the last nearly three seasons. And because of the 60-game pandemic, it's, it's not quite three full years. But you're talking about 370 baseball games. The Nats have won only 38% of them. I mean, teams like uh, the best team in that time, obviously, is the Dodgers, which is basically the inverse kind of of the Nationals. I mean, they've won 68% of their games during that time. But clubs like the Rangers, the Diamondbacks, you know, the Orioles have far surpassed them now with their good season. But the Tigers, the Marlins, the Royals, the Rockies, you know, the Cubs, these teams that have been bad for a couple years, I mean, it's not even close. They've won 25, 30 more games, some of them, than the Nationals. So I guess I wanted to bring that up just to say a couple of things. You know, if you hear this narrative, if you hear this being mentioned by people about, oh, well, it's year one of the rebuild or, you know, the Nationals fans are dealing with them uh, being really bad for the first time here, correct them and say, no, 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 listen up. We've been with this team through the 2020 disaster, through the 2021 shambles of a season that that was, and now 2022. You guys are in year three of dealing with this. You deserve a pat on the back. You deserve a little love. Because I don't think you're getting enough credit for some of the patience you've already shown here, right? I mean, in 2019, the World Series is going to buy you some leeway if you're the learners and and the front office. I totally get that. And that flag will fly forever. And I remember being at the parade, and I had a really – you know, unique opportunity, obviously, being in the media and being a part of the flagship station where I was on the field doing interviews after games for Charlie and Dave's radio broadcasts. And I ran out of the tunnel and onto the field as the team was mobbing each other in the infield in Houston. You know, I was five feet away from the dog pile, right? Some, some memories I'll never have. And that will buy some patience, to be honest. That will buy some willingness for me to kind of sit back and allow for them to try to get this right again. 
But I just don't want this idea to continue to circulate. And you guys can let me know if you have heard this. But the, the idea is like, well, the Nationals fell off and now they're bad. It's like, well, for you as a fan have dealt for three years now with one of the worst, quite literally, only the Pirates' worst, products in the sport. And so like it, the whole three more years thing, that's too long for me. It's been three years. It's why they need to be more aggressive faster, I guess is my bigger picture point. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This offseason is going to be uh, you know, hard to peg and project because when does the new owner take over? I guess the first question should be, before I even get there, is there a new owner that's going to take over? I mean, I, I haven't heard many people talk about this, but and I think this is probably... Unlikely, but we're all just kind of assuming that this sale is going to happen by the end of the year. I mean, is there any chance that the learners don't get whatever they want and they just keep this thing, which might be the worst case scenario at this point, based on some of the speculation you see out there and some of the people I talk to who think, you know, while Mark Lerner is still a big fan, that maybe other members of the family have checked out or aren't as interested. So I I guess, number one, are they going to sell on the timeline that we are expecting? It's not a foregone conclusion, right? It's not a formality. I mean, it still has to happen. But let's just assume that your Barry Sverluga of the post types are right and that the timeline is that they're going to try to get this thing sold by the end of this calendar year. When does the new owner take over? How much offseason is left? And what is their initial plan? I mean, do they want to throw money at some problems here and come in and try to invest in this thing right away? Or are they going to largely sit out that first few months, right, because they're just starting to take over, they're brand new to this thing, that they want to see what works within the organization and what doesn't? I mean, if I was buying, you know, a billion-plus-dollar entity, I might do a lot of Sitting, watching, researching, hire some smart people to tell me what's good and what isn't before I start making all my own changes. So maybe this is not the offseason where they make a push. And with where their best prospects are, you know, James Wood and A-Ball and Yarlan Susana and A-Ball. Cavalli is obviously close, but with the setback of Henry and, and Hassel probably not getting to the big leagues until the second half of next year. I mean, it might stand to reason that you have one more year where you can wait. But I guess my point is they shouldn't wait and do that again in, in the offseason after. Like, how much can they ask of you guys to keep paying the big prices, to go to the games, to keep tuning in with all the other options you have? You know, there's great programming on Apple TV. <laughs> there's really good programming on HBO Max and Netflix. I mean, you got options, right? So at some point, they got to hit the NOS button here and really start trying to build a winner. I was tweeting about this yesterday at Grant H. Paulson on Twitter. So as I tape Wednesday, this was going back to Tuesday if you want to go check it out. But look, it's not a conclusion that if you just have a big payroll and you spend a lot of money, your team is good. But it gives you a much better chance to be good. 
eight of the top 10 teams by luxury tax payroll this year in baseball are in playoff position entering Tuesday, according to data provided by Major League Baseball to Axios. The current playoff teams and where their payroll ranks right now, the Mets have the highest payroll in the sport. The Dodgers have the second highest payroll. I'm just going in the NL standings right now in the Nats League. So the number one team, number one in the sport and payroll. The number two team, number two in the sport and payroll. The Phillies, number four in the sport and payroll. The Padres, number six in the sport and payroll. The Braves, number eight in the sport and payroll. And the Cardinals, number 15 in the sport and payroll. So all in the top half. Meanwhile, in the American League, the Yankees, third in payroll. The Astros, ninth in payroll. The Blue Jays, 10th in payroll. And then in the American League, you do have some analytically-minded teams that don't have huge payrolls. The Mariners, 21st. The Rays, 23rd. The Guardians, 27th. But half of the American League field is in the top 10. And all but the Cardinals in the NL field is in the top 10. And the point is... Again, eight of the top ten teams by luxury tax payroll. So I just gave you their rankings and overall payroll. Are in playoff position entering Tuesday. The Mets, who clinched this week, are on track to have Major League Baseball's highest payroll for the first time since 1989. Back then it was only $21 And I'm getting some of these numbers from an Axios piece that I read. They are one of a record-tying six teams that has decided that they're going to pay the luxury tax this year. So of the teams that are willing to pay the luxury tax, the Mets at 298.8 mil, 29.9 million in tax, they're going to have Steve Cohen just stroke a check and pay 30 million bucks. They win a World Series, is that worth it or not? You tell me. I think it is. The Dodgers, 290 million, 29.4 million in a penalty, if you will, in a luxury tax payment. How's that working out for them? I just told you. The Dodgers have the best record in the sport with 252 wins, 30 more than anybody else since the start of the 2019 season. The Yankees, $267 million. Aaron Judge just hit his 60th home run to tie Babe Ruth last night. They're headed to the postseason. They're packing their ballpark. They're paying a $9 million tax. Phillies, $243.1 mil, paying a $2.6 million tax. The Red Sox are the one team here that paid a lot of money and will pay a tax and will have nothing to show for it because they were a debacle this year, last in the American League East. $234.5 million, $900,000 tax. And then the Padres at $232.8 mil are going to make the playoffs. They're going to pay an $800,000 tax. So what is the moral of the story here? What am I getting at? Well, some of you are already ahead of me. Aggressiveness helps. Spending is a necessity. If you want to not spend, you can win, Cleveland, Tampa Bay. You have to be smarter and more analytically minded and just sharper than everybody else. And this team, while they have tried to gain ground in those areas, and I will hope that the new owner is going to spend more and more money to do that, is nowhere near being in position to just basically calculator their way to the postseason like Tampa Bay does. So you better spend the way that they operate here. The luxury tax is designed to prevent the big market teams from far outspending the little market teams. That's the whole point because there's no salary cap. So owners can spend as much as they want on players, but you get penalized for doing that. And those penalties start to balloon 
as Axios puts it, at $230 million. So there's four thresholds, just so that you guys know how this works. Uh, I always hear people talking about the luxury tax, but I don't always hear it broken down or talked about in a way that is kind of educational. So many of you may already know this, but the luxury tax has four thresholds, 230 mil, 250 mil, 270 mil, and 290 mil. Teams are taxed at increasing rates for every dollar that they spend over those thresholds. Repeat offenders, so this year that's the Dodgers and the Padres, are taxed higher. Meaning if year over year you keep blowing past the threshold that they set up so that you don't overspend, no one's going to stop you. You're just going to pay a ton of money basically for doing that. So if you get an owner, if the Nats get an owner, their own Steve Cohen type, who comes in here and just doesn't care about the money, he's not running this thing as a business to make cash like a coffee shop. Rather, he wants to just stack titles and try to, you know, this is what he's spending his money on. And some people blow their money on cars. Some people blow their money like me on going out to eat. You know, maybe this owner wants to blow their money on a team and and just buying players that he likes or she likes. Mets owner Steve Cohen came in and wanted to spend money to build a winner. So he spent $290 million. His team surpassed the $290 million threshold, which is now kind of the first time we've seen this. It's the Cohen tax is, is what it's being called. And the luxury tax payroll, which is different than the overall payroll, basically, it's calculated by combining the contracts of every player on the 40-man roster plus about $16 million for benefits and $1.67 million for each team share of a new $50 million bonus pool for pre-arbitration players. And again, shout out to Axios for some of the breakdown on, on how that number went. In a newsletter this week, I saw that. but So that's kind of how it works. And I, I, what I'm hoping for is an owner that's willing to, to spend big, to pay those luxury tax freights because I think that that is the best way to compete. I'm not sitting here telling you it's a sure thing, right? You can have a huge payroll, Boston and lose. The Yankees, year in and year out, have one of the higher payrolls, generally speaking, in the sport. They haven't won a World Series since 2009, and pretty sure that's their only one in the 2000s, right, since since the turn of the millennium. Um, I get that it's not an automatic. It's hard to win. There's no automatics. But I do think you can help yourself to make sure that you're competitive if you're just actively trying real hard by bringing in great players. But I just thought those numbers, I mean, on the on the records, are, are just so revealing, right? And how about the Rays? You know, Houston is a top 10 spending team, and the Dodgers are number one, number two, depending on the year. The Mets have surpassed them, it sounds like, but they're normally right there at the top. The best three records in baseball over the last 370 games dating back to the start of that pandemic season. The Rays are right there, best in the American League. And they do it without really spending. But it just speaks to how brilliant they are in that front office. Really, really impressive.